This is section 68 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 68, Daily Hawaiian Herald, November-December, 1866. Daily Hawaiian Herald, November 16, 1866. Characteristic. The following is the conclusion of Mark Twain's advertisement for his lecture delivered lately in Grass Valley. After the lecture is over, the lecturer will perform the following wonderful feats on sleight of hand, if desired to do so. At a given signal, he will go out with any gentleman and take a drink. If desired, he will repeat this unique and interesting feat, repeat it until the audience are satisfied that there is no deception about it. At a moment's warning, he will depart out of town and leave his hotel bill unsettled. He has performed this ludicrous trick many hundreds of times in San Francisco and elsewhere, and it has always elicited the most enthusiastic comments. At any hour of the night, after ten, the lecturer will go through any house in the city, no matter how dark it may be, and take an inventory of its contents, and not miss as many of the articles as the owner will in the morning. The lecturer declines to specify any more of his miraculous feats at present, for fear of getting the police too much interested in his circus. Daily Hawaiian Herald, December 13, 1866. Letter from Mark Twain. How, for instance? Coming down from Sacramento on the Capitol the other night, I found on a center table a pamphlet advertisement of an accident insurance company. It interested me a good deal, with its general accidents, and hazardous tables, and extra-hazardous furniture of the same description, and I would like to know something more about it. It is a new thing to me. I want to invest if I come to like it. I want to ask merely a few questions of the man who carries on this accident shop, if you think you can spare so much space to a far distant stranger. I am an orphan. He publishes this list as accidents he is willing to insure people against. General accidents include the traveling risk, and also all forms of dislocations, broken bones, ruptures, tendons, sprains, concussions, crushings, bruising, cuts, stabs, gunshot wounds, poisoned wounds, burns and scalds, freezing, bites, unprovoked assaults by burglars, robbers, or murderers the action of lightning or sunstroke, the effects of explosions, chemicals, floods, and earthquakes, suffocation by drowning or choking, where such accidental injury totally disables the person insured from following his usual avocation, or causes death within three months from the time of the happening of the injury. I want to address the party as follows. Now, Smith, I suppose likely your name is Smith, you don't know me, and I don't know you, but I am willing to be friendly. I am acquainted with a good many of your family. I know John as well as I know any man, and I think we can come to an understanding about your little game without any hard feelings. For instance, do you allow the same money on a dog-bite that you do on an earthquake? Do you take special risks for specific accidents? That is to say, could I— by getting a policy for dog-bites alone, get it cheaper than if I took a chance in your whole lottery. And if so, and supposing I got insured against earthquakes, 
would you charge any more for San Francisco earthquakes than for those that prevail in places that are better anchored down? And if I had a policy on earthquakes alone, I couldn't collect on a dog-bite, maybe, could I? If a man had such a policy, and an earthquake shook him up and loosened his joints a good deal, but not enough to incapacitate him from engaging in pursuits which did not require him to be tight, wouldn't you pay him some of his pension? I notice you do not mention biles. How about biles? Why do you discriminate between provoked and unprovoked assaults by burglars? If a burglar entered my house at dead of night, and I, in the excitement natural to such an occasion, should forget myself and say something that provoked him, and he should cripple me, wouldn't I get anything? But if I provoked him by pure accident, I would have you there, I judge, because you would have to pay for the accident part of it anyhow, seeing that insuring against accident is just your strong suit, you know. Now, that item about protecting a man against freezing is good. It will procure you all the custom you want in this country, because, you understand, the people hereabouts have suffered a good deal from just such climatic drawbacks as that. Why, three years ago, if a man, being a small fish in the matter of money, went over to Washu and bought into a good silver mine, they would let that man go on and pay assessments till his purse got down to about thirty-two Fahrenheit, and then the big fish would close in on him and freeze him out. And from that day forth you might consider that man in the light of a bankrupt community, and you would have him down to a spot, too. But if you are ready to insure against that sort of thing, and can stand it, you can give Washu a fair start. You might send me an agency. Business? Why, Smith, I could get you more business than you could attend to. With such an understanding as that, the boys would all take a chance. You don't appear to make any particular mention of taking risks on blighted affections. But if you should conclude to do a little business in that line, you might put me down for six or seven chances. I wouldn't mind expense. You might enter it on extra hazardous. I suppose I would get ahead of you in the long run anyhow, likely. I have been blighted a good deal in my time. But now as to those effects of lightning. Suppose the lightning were to strike out at one of your men and miss him, and fetch another party. Could that other party come on you for damages? Or could the relatives of the party thus suddenly snaked out of the bright world in the bloom of his youth come on you in case he was crowded for time? As of course he would be, you know, under such circumstances. You say you have issued over sixty thousand policies, forty-five of which have proved fatal and been paid for. Now, do you know, Smith, that that looks just a little shaky to me, in a measure? You appear to have it pretty much all your own way, you see. It is all very well for the lucky forty-five that have died and been paid for, but how about the other fifty-nine thousand nine hundred and fifty-five? You have got their money, haven't you? But somehow the lightning don't seem to strike them, and they don't get any chance at you. Won't their families get fatigued waiting for their dividends? Don't your customers drop off rather slow, so to speak? You will ruin yourself publishing such damaging statements as that, Smith. I tell you as a friend, if you had said that the 59,955 died, and that 45 lived, you would have issued about four tons of policies the next week. But people are not going to get insured 
when you take so much pains to prove that there is such precious little use in it. Yours, Mark Twain. Daily Hawaiian Herald, December 17, 1866. Open letter to Mark Twain. Honolulu, December 14, 1866. Affluent Mark. I write you in sorrow and tribulation. Since you left here, everything has gone wrong. The season wasn't worth shucks to ship chandlers, grog shops, or drug stores. The only class of people who made money out of it were newspaper men, music teachers, and portrait painters. Captain Coffin didn't make his salt, notwithstanding he had had all his harness casks repaired. Whitney's sales have been unprecedented. He disposed of three cases of Josephus, Knapp's Life of Caesar, Eke Homo, and three cotton gins. And Mr. Damon has cleared his shelves of all the latest sensation novels. By the way, the latter gentleman is getting anxious about his Jarvis. He and Mr. W. had a dispute about the ownership of the volume. How it came out I am not informed, but the latter's hair has gone mighty thin all of a sudden. What's the use of their quarreling about it? You and I know neither of them will ever see it again. Mark, your friends here are delighted at your pecuniary success in lecturing. They think you will not only help to establish the reputation of the islands abroad, but that you will help them out of their pilikia trouble, when you arrive here on the first China steamer. Some of them are unkind enough to hint that you are giving the islands fits, and that's the reason why you won't have the lecture published. Is it so? Bring plenty of rhino with you when you come. You have no idea how many admirers you have here. Wear stout buckskin gloves, for the pressure of hands will be immense. The natives of this island form a very even community, generally speaking. If you arrive here flush, every one of them is anxious to shake you by the hand, and if you arrive broke, they are sure to shake you anyhow. By this you will see how uniform is the native temperament. Speaking of temperament, reminds me that our friend Bucephalus Brown has, as usual, slipped up again. Some two months since, he started a temperance society, and elected himself president, treasurer, and all the members. Its motto was, The greatest good to the greatest bummers, and great things were expected from it. The society flourished for a while, but I regret to say that where it should have found its truest friend, it found its most unrelenting foe. You know, Mark, that Brown always got along swimmingly, both hygienically and pecuniarily, when he took his regular tangle-leg like a man. Impecuniosity was unknown to that confiding art. Your Montgomery Street friends can vouch for this from the number of IOUs they have signed over to B.B., but he backslided, and as I said above, organized himself into a grand temperance union for the propagation of cold-water habits. From that day Brown has been going down. He preached cold water and vilified corn juice. He denounced the appy and hilarious mood, and sang paeans to the Honolulu waterworks. Don Miguel Harvey, from Limerick, was his aversion. Colonel Pendergast, from Hilo, was his ne plat ultra. Now mark the sequel. Just as he thought he was getting adversity, where the har is short, cold water threw him higher than a Chinese kite. Either he was too heavy on cold water and it rebelled, 
or tamarind syrup with a stick in it became jealous of its competitor and fiendishly made it the dupe to compass brown's destruction a few nights ago the water-tap overflowed in his humble but gorgeously equipped hattie and as the landlord had taken the marvelous precaution to have holes bored in the floor just above a large invoice of most unsaleable and costly privately they were just out of season articles ever imported from injar his fellow-tenants embroidered silk overcoats and ristori crinolines got soaked when he was called upon to examine the goods he discovered just what he said he had anticipated videlicet that the water had traveled all around the store and hugged the only good on hand for which there was no market you will appreciate poor brown's feelings mark when i privately tell you that he has a big disgust on against water that water and he don't mix that he is hydrophobic mark avoid it if you must spend your money spend it on something less liable to leak through floors than cold water i would also advise you whenever you rent an upper story to see that the first floor is occupied by a lager beer merchant or a charity school remember brown mark i see you are raking up the disease and accident insurance companies as you and smith the insurance man seem to understand each other use your influence with him in brown's favor he thinks of returning to the coast and making another pile but as you know he always had an irresistible desire to establish a daily newspaper at the farallons i fear he may invest his next fortune in that enterprise if you could only get smith to add to his list of articles insured the item of hydroscatteries i will get brown to remember you in his last will and testament ever of thee s permoil end of section sixty eight